great to be here with you. I see a lot of familiar faces out there. I see some faces that I don't recognize, so let me introduce myself a little bit more. Uh, my name is Ben Ribbons. As Greg mentioned, I'm an assistant professor of theology at Trinity Christian College. Uh, and before I move on, let me just pause a moment to extend greetings to you from Trinity Christian College, from the faculty, staff, and administration. Uh, in addition to teaching, that's my primary profession, I'm also an ordained minister and a member of this congregation. And what I really love about teaching is the opportunity it affords me to open scripture with students every day. And what I really love about preaching is the opportunity to do that with God's people. And so it really is a joy for me to be here with you all this morning in my home congregation with the people of God that I worship with and to be able to do that with all of you. But I have a warning. When I usually open scripture with my students, I have either an hour or an hour and a half. And Greg, I'm assuming I have the shorter of those times, please. I'll try to keep it under an hour, all right? Um, but let's dive in. Let's open scripture together and see what God has to say for us today. If you have your Bibles with you, open to John 21. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, that, that's fine. We've got the, the Bible up there. We've got wall Bibles, I like to call it. Uh, so we're all good. John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples asked him or dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. 
I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would be glorified. Then he said to him, follow me. Let me tell you a story of betrayal. There was a bad empire. And on the outskirts of this empire, there was a small city. It was too far off in the distance and too small to be of any significance. And so the empire pretty much let it be. And the person in charge of the city was a suave and charismatic man. He kept everybody in line through his cunning and charms. And one day, an old friend shows up. He's on the run, having just escaped a fracas with the empire. And he's looking for a quiet place to lay low for a while. And after a couple of tense moments, the administrator welcomes his friend and offers him safe haven and the resources of the city. But what the friend on the run doesn't realize is that the empire has beat him to the city, and they've given the administrator a choice. He can betray his friend, and the empire will let the city be, or he can resist, and the empire will crush him, his friend, the entire city. Who recognizes this story of betrayal. My sci-fi friends have a leg up on this one. It's the story of Lando Calrissian. Yeah, administrator of Cloud City. Uh, he betrays his friend Han Solo, who then is frozen in carbonite. Let's try another one. Uh, this one's a little bit easier. I promise everyone in the crowd knows this story. There was a king. And this king was a good king, a virtuous king. But he had a brother. Oh, brothers. The younger brother resented his older brother because he would always have to play second fiddle. And now the king has a son. And so this younger brother is even further away from the throne and power. And so this younger brother makes an alliance with some seedy compatriots who help him kill the king, force the, his nephew into exile and take the throne. Anybody recognize this one? Yeah. I heard it. I don't know if the rest of you did. What's difficult about this one, even though everyone knows this story, is that this story is almost all too common. Right? In literature and in history, games of thrones are characterized by backstabbing and by betrayal. Could this be the Nordic myth of Thor, who's betrayed by his brother Loki? Or the Viking Ragnar Lothbrok, betrayed by his brother Rolo? Or Richard III, betrayed by his brother Thomas? No, as I heard someone say, this is the story of Lion King. Yeah. <laughs> Mufasa, who's betrayed by his brother Scar, who convinces his young nephew that uh, his father's death is all his fault. That's, uh, that one tugs at your heartstrings, doesn't it? sad moment. Stories of betrayal populate our history and our literature because betrayal is part of our fallen human affliction. And when we think about stories of betrayal in the Bible, we may think about Cain betraying his brother Abel. We especially think of Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But today I want to introduce you to someone else who betrayed Jesus. Today I want to introduce you to Simon whom we often call Peter. 
Peter, in many ways, was the leader of Jesus' disciples. He and his brother Andrew were fishermen before Jesus called them. In fact, it was while they were fishing that Jesus called, saying, Come, follow me. Scripture doesn't record an ensuing conversation. In fact, it records that no conversation ensued. We read simply, immediately they dropped their nets and followed him. That right there is Peter in a nutshell. He is bold. He is impetuous. At the drop of a hat, he makes big, grand life choices. I mean, Peter had a wife. He had a family. He had a mother-in-law. And Jesus calls, and Peter's gone. He leaves it all. Peter is bold, decisive, even foolhardy, but he's committed. And from that day forward, Peter follows after Jesus, is taught by him. He learns, he listens, completely entranced by this Son of God. He is a disciple trying in every way to be like Jesus, to walk like him, to talk like him, to live like him. Now, three years later, or a few years later, on the night before Jesus dies, Jesus says to all of the disciples that each one of them will betray him. Each one will fall away. Now, Peter, he's bold, he's brash, he's unrelenting. He talks back to Jesus. He says, no, Jesus, it doesn't matter what comes. No matter what trials and persecution comes, I would never fall away. I'd go to prison for you. I would die for you. Peter is convinced that even if all of the other disciples fall away, he won't. He'll outlast them. He'll outpace them. And a few hours later, Jesus is arrested, and the disciples do flee. They do scatter. And Peter does, in fact, outpace the rest of the disciples. Because he at least follows after the soldiers to the place where Jesus is on trial. But it's there that Peter loses his nerve. A servant girl. A lowly servant girl. Not some judge, not some soldier, not some threatening person, an unimposing, non-threatening servant girl gets Peter to unravel. She recognizes him. Hey, don't you know this Jesus fellow? Follow him about? Peter replies, no, I don't, I don't know him. She asks a second time, and Peter again says, no, I, I don't know him. And a third time, and now Peter loses it. He starts cursing at all of the people around him, and then he swears an oath. God, as my witness, I don't know the man. And it's in that moment that Peter knows. Peter realizes the profound act of betrayal that he's just committed. Given the chance to stand beside his friend, his rabbi, his messiah, he failed. He acted as if he didn't even know Jesus and all to save his own neck so that he wouldn't be mocked, ridiculed, scrutinized. Peter in that moment gets that feeling you get when you betray someone, that sickening feeling in your gut, the one that feels like a 20-pound sack of flour. You know what I'm talking about. It takes your appetite makes you feel like everything is amiss. You can't shake that feeling. Peter knows he's betrayed Jesus and he can't live with himself. He can't even be near him. And so he flees outside and he weeps. 
Have you ever felt that way? I mean, I presume you haven't betrayed someone to death, but have you ever talked about a friend behind their back? Maybe spread some gossip, said some negative things about them? I mean, did you see what she wore last night? <laughs> Ridiculous. And then they catch you in the act, or word gets back to them. And it's a betrayal of trust. It's, it's a betrayal of friendship. And you know, you just know you messed up. But what you don't know is if you're going to be able to make things right. Will we reconcile? Where we, will we get back to where we were? And in the meantime, every time you think about it, you get that knot in your stomach, that ache, that almost nausea. And sometimes it's not our words that demonstrate our betrayal of friends and relationships. Sometimes it's our actions. Peter said, I don't know the man. And sometimes our actions communicate that message. Have you ever betrayed a friend by abandoning them? By fading from their life? Especially when being their friend becomes hard, difficult, no longer advantageous. Another way that our actions speak this message are acts of infidelity. When, when we are unfaithful to our friends and our family members, we act as if we don't know them. We act as if they don't exist. Each of these actions leaves us with that sinking feeling in our stomach, that feeling of guilt and shame. And it's not difficult for each one of us to think of, to recall all of the ways that we have betrayed our friends and our families, those we love, even Jesus. Often our words and actions reflect betrayal. They reflect that we don't know him, that we're not committed to Jesus. We don't act like him. We don't talk like him. We don't live like him. Our passage today picks up on this story of betrayal, and it tells us about the fallout in this relationship, but also how there is restoration. By this point in the story, Jesus has risen from the dead. Amazing things are happening all around, but Peter still has this thing hanging over his head. He still doesn't know where he stands with Jesus. He has betrayed the one person in his life who gives him meaning and purpose. And so Peter has no meaning. He has no purpose. He's aimless. And one day he's hanging out with his friends, the disciples, and what do you do? When you don't know what to do. You do what you know how to do. You do that comfortable thing. And so Peter says, boys, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples look at each other and they're like, yeah, why not? We'll head out with you. And they go out fishing and they don't catch a thing. Not a thing. Not all night. And Peter, can you imagine, has got to be thinking to himself, what is wrong with me? I mess up this thing I have with Jesus. I go back to fishing. This thing I do for a living, and I can't even do that right anymore. Why can't anything go right? After a long night of fishing, we, we get this intriguing miracle. Jesus tells them to try the other side of the boat. There's a miraculous haul. Peter Fine knows that it's Jesus. Once everybody comes to shore, they have breakfast. Once again, they're breaking bread together. And it's here in this moment that Peter and Jesus 
have real work to do. Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now Jesus is going to ask this question three times, but it's only this first time that we have this phrase, more than these. What are these? Is Jesus asking Peter if he loves him more than these disciples? That'd be an odd thing to ask, wouldn't it? An awkward thing to ask, especially with all the other disciples sitting right there. But that's the kind of question that the disciples seem to concern themselves with. They always ask Jesus things like, who's going to be number two and number three in your kingdom? Who's better? Who loves more? That's not the kind of question that Jesus tends to ask. He is not asking, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples do? So what are these? Well, what else is present in that moment? Jesus and the disciples are on the beach, and there's really nothing else there except for the fishing boat and the sails and the nets. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these fishing implements? Do you love me more than this comfortable life that you've returned to? Do you love me enough to walk away from that comfortable life and to follow me? This is what Jesus is asking here, but he doesn't say, do you love me more than these fishing implements? Because it doesn't matter what these are. It's anything. It's everything. Do you love me enough to give up everything else? Do you love me above all else? Peter failed when given this choice before. When given the choice of standing beside Jesus or fleeing back to a comfortable life, he fled. And so Peter gets the opportunity here to undo what he did before, to redo it. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. It happens a second time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Take care of my sheep. And a third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? But this time Peter's hurt. It's that conflicted hurt, you know? The hurt of realizing that Jesus doesn't trust him has to ask him a third time, but also the hurt of knowing that he's proven himself untrustworthy. The third question recalls the three denials. It brings back that ache in his gut, that sense of guilt and shame. Peter wants to tell Jesus how much he loves him while being completely aware of all of the ways he's let him down. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Over the course of this sermon series, we've been looking at encounters that people have with Jesus. Have you noticed the way in which encounters with Jesus are perplexing, baffling? I mean, encounters with Jesus are not like encounters with other people. But as we look at this odd encounter, I want us to reflect on two ways that Jesus' encounter with Peter extends to him and offers him grace. The first way that Jesus offers grace is unconditional reconciliation. For a story of betrayal, this story doesn't follow the typical patterns. Uh, When it comes to stories of betrayal, there are two paths. 
The first path is revenge. The person who is betrayed comes back and gets revenge on all of those who betrayed him. The Count of Monte Cristo is like this, right? Edmond Dantes comes back, he gets revenge on all of those who betrayed him, his best friend, Fernand Mondego, chief of them all. Lion King is like this. Simba, he comes back, he gets revenge on Scar, he overthrows Scar and takes back the throne. The other path for a story of betrayal is redemption. In redemption, if you betray somebody, then you need to go to extreme lengths to show your commitment to them, to regain their loyalty. That's the story of Lando Calrissian. He betrays Han, but then he frees Leia and Chewbacca from Cloud City, and in Return of the Jedi, he comes back, infiltrates Jabba the Hutt's palace, and helps free Han from the Carbonite. I'm a nerd, I'm sorry. <laughs> Redemption. Putting your life on the line in order to demonstrate your newfound commitment. Did you notice that with Peter, neither one of these stories, storylines, is what happens. I mean, Jesus doesn't get revenge on Peter. Of course not. We wouldn't expect that. But neither does Peter earn redemption. He doesn't do anything to show his new commitment. He doesn't put his life on the line. He doesn't really do anything. He doesn't even beg forgiveness. Wouldn't we at least expect that? You know, Jesus, I messed up. I know I messed up. Please forgive me. But Peter doesn't even initiate the conversation. Jesus comes to Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And that's it. That's it. Peter and Jesus are reconciled. Peter is forgiven. Encounters with Jesus are not like encounters with other people. Peter doesn't have to do anything else. He doesn't have to prove himself, earn redemption. Christ's economy is not like the economy of this world. In our world, the betrayer must earn redemption. But in Christ's economy, Christ, the one who is betrayed, earns redemption for all of us who betray him. How incredible is that? And when I say incredible, I mean in all senses. It's, it's amazing, it's extraordinary, but it's also unthinkable, unimaginable. With all our guilt and shame, with that pit in our stomach, knowing all of the ways that we have failed to follow our Lord and Savior, failed to follow in the footsteps of our rabbi, Jesus sets us free. Jesus does the work for us. Do you love me? is the only question. Now my instinct as a preacher is to, to stay there and sit on that amazing grace a little bit longer, but the thing about our text is that it doesn't let us. Because we get this odd response from Jesus. He says, feed my sheep. This leads us to the second way that Jesus' encounter with Peter offers him grace. Not only does Jesus offer unconditional reconciliation, but he also offers identity and purpose. Jesus commands Peter, feed my sheep, follow me. Now these two commands, they're not prerequisites to the 
reconciliation that we just talked about. Neither are they a burden for Peter or for us, a burden that could lead to guilt. Rather, these two commands are grace. They're grace for us today because they're part of the way that Jesus frees us from guilt and shame. For some people in the church, it's hard for us to shake the sense of guilt and shame even when we know that Christ has forgiven us. Perhaps that's because we have this gnawing awareness of the way that we tend to fall back in those habits that fill us with guilt. For others in the church, talking about all of these things that God does, you know, Jesus forgives, Jesus redeems, Jesus does it all, for some of you that may give you a sense of aimlessness. I know all these amazing things that God is doing, but what am I supposed to do? In the ancient world, one's name was a big part of their identity. So let me tell you about how Peter got his name. Because Peter wasn't his given name. His given name was Simon, a good Hebrew name. And one day Jesus comes to all of the disciples and he, he asks, who do you think I am? And all the disciples are on the spot. They're not sure what to say. But, you know, Peter, he chimes in. You're the Christ. Now remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's a Greek title that means Messiah. And what do Messiahs do? They are kings who establish kingdoms. And so Simon is right. Jesus is a king bringing in a kingdom. And so Jesus affirms this and says to Simon, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. From now on, your name is Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. So Simon now has the nickname Peter. And if you read throughout the rest of the New Testament, you'll find that, that Simon is referred to with one other name, the name Cephas. Simon, Peter, and Cephas are all the same person, all the same dude. Peter is a Greek name that means rock. And in Aramaic, a Hebrew dialect that Jesus and his disciples spoke, in Aramaic, Cephas is a name that means rock. Jesus is telling Simon that he is the Peter. He is the Cephas. Jesus is telling Simon that he is the rock. I had to wait for that one. We got there. Uh, not that kind of rock. Not that kind of rock. There it is. Okay. Jesus tells Simon that he is the rock. This is his identity. He is the very foundation of what God is doing. God is building his kingdom on, in, and through Simon. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus wants to go on to explain what his kingdom is going to be like. And so he tells the disciples that he's going to be rejected and killed. But remember, Peter is bold, brash. He's not afraid to rebuke Jesus. And Peter knows one thing for certain. Messiahs conquer. Messiahs overthrow Rome and establish the nation of Israel. Messiahs are not rejected and killed. And so Peter tells Jesus that he's, he's mistaken. That death is not the route for Jesus. And Jesus turns to, to Simon, to Peter, and he says, Get behind me, 
Satan. Can you imagine? Devastating. Just told that he is the rock on which the kingdom is being built, Jesus turns to him and calls him a son of a devil. He tells him he doesn't understand his kingdom at all. He doesn't get it. Peter struggles to see Jesus for who he truly is. And then Jesus goes on to explain to the disciples that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. This story reminds us of the two commands from John 21. The two commands. The first one, follow me. To follow Jesus is to put yourself to death. Not your physical self, but your wills, your ambitions, your desires, your dreams. To take up your cross and to die to self means to serve others. It's to serve Christ and his kingdom. This is the gospel. It is so demanding and yet so gracious. Christ frees us from sin and guilt and shame. Yet freedom is not simply liberation. Rather, it's being freed into a better life. If you were to liberate a tiger from the Lincoln Park Zoo, it wouldn't be enough to simply open its cage. Because letting a tiger loose on urban Chicago is not freedom for a tiger, is it? No, instead you would need to free the tiger into an environment in which it can thrive. This is what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't simply take the burden of sin away, but leave us to wallow in and cycle back into sin and guilt and shame. Rather, his liberation beckons us into a life in which we can thrive. When have you felt guilty when serving someone else? When have you felt shame about putting someone else's needs in front of your own? When we put ourselves to death and live for Christ and his kingdom, we step into a world that is less burdened by guilt and shame. Feed my sheep. Peter is a dynamic character, just like we are dynamic people. He is a contradiction of confident belief and petulant failure. And when we meet him today, we see him on that failure side. He's denied Jesus. He's gone back to a life of fishing, essentially reverting to his reality before he met Jesus. But Jesus comes to this guilty, broken, aimless, directionless man. And he says, feed my sheep. Jesus comes to Peter and he gives him his identity back. He says, you are Peter. You are the rock. I'm building my kingdom on you, through you. Take care of my sheep. Feed my lambs. People of God, this right here, this is your name tag. This is each one of ours name tag. In the Gospels, Peter embodies all of those who seek after Jesus. Seek, mind you. We struggle, we fail, we seek. Each one of us is burdened with sin and guilt and shame, yet Jesus takes that burden. We don't have to do the work. 
You don't have to redeem yourself. You don't have to prove your loyalty. But not only does Jesus take that burden away, but he opens up a whole new world of joy and purpose and freedom from guilt and shame. And then he comes to us and he gives us an identity. He comes to each one of us and he says, Simon, Tom, Kristen, Nicole, you are Peter. You are the rock. Yeah, that's each one of you. No matter how broken you are, no matter how guilty, ashamed, inadequate you might feel, you matter in God's kingdom. You are the rock. You are the very foundation of what God is doing in this world because you are the church, God's kingdom on earth in flesh and blood. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, forgive us, free us, Even when we struggle to let our sin and guilt go, set us free. Lead us into a life of service to you and your kingdom, and help us to find our identity and purpose in you. Lord, show us where we might participate in your work of bringing in the kingdom. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.